Welcome, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today on my show, we're gonna talk about the disgraced Southern Poverty Law Center fires its founder, but the hate continues. The Equality Act, the Democrats have proposed dooming freedom and free speech, and third, triggered Harvard students flunking constitutional kindergarten. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today in my first five, I want to talk about the firing this past week of the founder of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, he's actually 82 years old, Morris Dees. He founded Southern Poverty Law Center in 1971. The president of the Southern Poverty Law Center, current president Richard Cohen, basically uh, made a statement just uh, about dismissal over misconduct, was effective this past uh, Wednesday, did not um, lead to, did not make a description of the misconduct, but rumors were flying around about inappropriate conduct um, at the workplace. But the reason I wanted to seize on this story is not really so much about Morris Dees, the founder who was fired, but about the role Southern Poverty Law Center has played in this country to stir up hate. They claim to be an organization dedicated to exposing hate. That's their main thing they say they do. They expose hate. They show the world. Uh, you know, they list groups that are hateful, and they list some groups that are hateful. I mean, the KKK, nobody in their right mind on either side of the political aisle is defending the KKK. No one is defending the white supremacist groups. These are radical groups, way extreme groups. Nobody is defending them either side. They are hateful. But what the Southern Poverty Law Center has done over the last decades is turn whatever used to be a good mission, and apparently their original mission was to stand up for civil rights, but somewhere in the 1980s, again, they were founded in 1971, somewhere in the mid-1980s, they shifted course and they simply became a weapon. They became the, a weapon the left-wing America used, used to pillory, to label, to discredit anyone who dared to take a position contrary to left-wing orthodoxy. So, for example, the Southern Poverty Law Center actually named the Family Research Council as a hate group. I mean, it's, it's so ludicrous, but what they're getting at is because the Family Research Council supports traditional marriage and therefore does not support the LGBTQ agenda, they are designated by the Southern Poverty Law Center, the very disgraced Southern Poverty Law Center, as a hate group, excuse me. <coughs> All right, so it's Family Research Council's one group. Another group they labeled is the Alliance Defending Freedom, the ADF, a group of lawyers who try to help people stand up for their religious freedom. A group that takes on cases, for example, like a florist, a person who has a floral shop who was prosecuted and sued for declining to sell flowers to make the floral arrangements 
for a same-sex wedding because her Christian faith calls for her, in her view, to not participate in a same-sex marriage. So here we have Southern Poverty Law Center attacking Christians, labeling as a hate group, groups that move forward with the Christian worldview in mind, and instead of engaging on the substance of the issue or recognizing that reasonable adults in our society can disagree with each other, the Southern Poverty Law Center goes about labeling them as hate groups. And if you think they do it just because they are trying to stand up for little people and they're just trying to bring the world into awareness of their views, understand the Southern Poverty Law Center uses their hate group listing, their hate group agenda, to destroy their enemies. There's a quick clip I'm going to play for you. I hope we have ready. I think we have ready. A quick clip, quick clip uh, by one of the gentlemen who's one of the main administrators of the uh, leaders of the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center explaining what, what really is their mission when they list people as hate groups. This is Mark Potok speaking, I think, about seven years ago. Now, our, our aim is you know, sometimes the press will describe us as monitoring hate groups and so on. I want to say plainly that our aim in life is to destroy these groups, to completely destroy them. <laughs> if you didn't catch what he said, he said, some people think we exist to just label hate groups. We exist to destroy them. They publish very ugly things about any group that won't dare to agree with a left-wing agenda in this country. And I want to just show you a map. This is a map of all the places Southern Poverty Law Center claims hate groups exist. Their hate group, that, that's the map behind me, yeah. That hate group includes organizations that stand up for freedom of religion. It includes, actually, of all breathtaking things, Ayan Hirsi Ali, an American advocate, an American woman who grew up in Islam and advocates for the rights of women in the Muslim faith. She's designated by them as a hate, as a hater, because she dares to speak truth about the Islamic faith. So Ayan Hirsi Ali, one of the ridiculous uh, labelings they did, Alliance Defending Freedom. And then what they actually went a little too far uh, within the last few years, and they labeled a, um, a group, I think it's based in England, but they labeled a group that was trying to speak out um, about Islamic extremism. And this is, of course, the left-wing agenda. You can never criticize Islam. So this group in England uh, was founded by a guy named Majid Nawaz, and his group was called the Quilliam International. He sued them. And let me make something clear. I may correct that. He only threatened to sue them. They, Southern Poverty Law Center, put Quilliam on the list of groups that they called hate groups. Quilliam didn't even have to file a lawsuit. The founder, Majid Nawaz, all he had to do was send a letter to Southern Poverty Law Center saying, hey, by the way, we're not a hate group. You know, we are we have Muslims in our group. We are trying to speak up against Islamic extremism. But the attack on him was so vicious. The Southern Poverty Law Center had no justification for what they did. And so before the lawsuit was even filed, the Southern Poverty Law Center agreed to pay $3.375 million to the Quilliam International Group and Majid Nawaz. This was a great thing. That lawsuit prompted other organizations who are just really sick of the Southern Poverty Law Center using its hate group list as a political hammer clobbering anyone who dares disagree with them 
So now they're being sued by another group here in America, a group that tries to speak up about immigration policy, uh, the Center for Immigration Studies. And that group, Center for Immigration Studies, actually sued them, claiming that they a violation of RICO. Now, I don't know how far they'll get with it, but more groups are suing Southern Poverty Law Center for this lie, this incredibly insidious method they have of labeling anyone who won't agree with them as a hater, as someone who belongs in their hate group list. Sound familiar? This is what the Democrat Party does all day long, every day. You won't agree with them on border policy? You're a xenophobe. You don't like people who don't look like you or people not from your country. Won't agree with them on whether on traditional marriage versus same-sex marriage? You must be a homophobe. Won't agree with them. Whatever the issue is, the American left uses the same tactic as a Southern Poverty Law Center, labeling people who dare to speak up against her agenda as haters. And I, I love that people are finally challenging Southern Poverty Law Center. One more point on them, and then we'll move on to the next thing today. But one more point is this. The Southern Poverty Law Center, so willing to label people as racist, label them as xenophobes, label them as homophobes, label them as haters. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But they somehow could not find it in their research, in their thinking, to question somebody like Don Lemon, the CNN talk host. This CNN talk show host, and if you don't ever listen, okay, I don't ever listen to CNN. I'm going to guess most of my listeners don't listen to CNN. But on CNN, Don Lemon, an African-American host, actually was, he did at least two egregiously, said two egregiously racist things before she was criticized. One was he was criticizing Kanye West, the African-American who has, has come out in support of President Trump. Kanye West, you know, backing Candace Owens to a certain degree, agreeing with Candace Owens, supporting President Trump. Don Lemon called Kanye West a word that we don't say on this show, but he was a he was a, mocking him and calling him. He, he was criticizing uh, Kanye West for even daring to speak up in support of President Trump. And of all things, Herschel Walker, the uh, football legend Herschel Walker, called on CNN to fire Don Lemon. Don Lemon made comments such as calling Kanye West a token N-word, um, which obviously pretty ugly. Don Lemon also called on CNN. He said, we shouldn't be worried about these caravans at the southern border. White men are the biggest terror threat to this nation. He makes racist comments. And I'm going to tell you, it would never cross the minds of the People's Southern Poverty Law Center to call out Don Lemon's racism. It would never occur to them. Because in the left-wing worldview that is Southern Poverty Law Center, it's okay if you're racist as long as you're attacking white people. It's okay if you are racist, but your language is really only offensive to conservatives. So I got to tell you, there were a lot of people kind of jumping up and down last week about uh, Morris Dees being fired by Southern Poverty Law Center. Not so much because of what he did wrong, because it's not even clear yet what he did do wrong, but... Really, the larger point about his being fired was the idea that Southern Poverty Law Center is having to face some comeuppance. Some people, in fact, millions of conservatives in this country are tired of the Southern Poverty Law Center, the happy, friendly sounding name, being an organization that uses the false label of hate, labeling groups and individuals hateful, 
simply because they will not agree with the, the SPLC's radical leftist agenda. And I and actually they had a um, the uh, website that people can put in their input about where they work, and then they can you can look and see well, what people say about this. There's a lot of commentary on the website related to Southern Poverty Law Center saying, you know what, these folks, they need a major house cleaning, not just Morris D's, but the whole lot of them. I hope it happens, because this is not really me saying uh, I, I'm conservative and I'm against a liberal group. This is me saying that when a group uses the tactic of labeling other people who won't agree with them as haters, they hurt the American culture. They hurt the American political conversation. They hurt not just the group they're, in, they're insult, the group they're insulting this week, but the entire culture that works very hard to improve race relations, to understand each other, to listen to each other, to learn to be respectful that other people have different ideas and their other ideas are allowed too in this country. Among the main things Southern Poverty Law Center targets is any group that will not agree with the LGBTQ agenda. Any group that might say, you know, it might be better for children to be raised in a traditional family. That's considered hate speech by the Southern Poverty Law Center. So I'm not, I am happy that they are under scrutiny I am happy they're under scrutiny. I am hoping they really do some soul searching. I am hoping if they really want to continue existing, that they really look at what they're trying to do, which cannot possibly be to continue on their present course of labeling everyone who won't agree with left-wing agenda a hater. It's ugly, it's divisive, it hurts America, it hurts American people, it hurts our culture, it hurts our ability to have robust political conversation in this country. I'm Debbie Georges. This is America Can We Talk, a three-second break. Tuning in to our next topic, we're going to turn to talking about the Equality Act the Democrats have proposed in Congress. Things won't be so good. We don't want this. Stay tuned. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. Okay, so I was going to tell you, I love this studio, by the way. I love doing the show here. This is uh, the Real News PR is the uh, organization, the Real News Communications Network. I love doing the show here. We rejiggered things a little bit. So now Matt, my, my wonderful producer, is in another room over there, and I only can kind of see him. And so I keep looking over there to see if I can, <laughs> can tell if he's signaling me. But anyway, uh, love being here, love doing the show here. Okay, I want to talk to you. You probably saw that, or you, I don't know if you did see, would have noticed, but... The Democrats in Congress, the Democrat-controlled U.S. House, proposed a bill last week, and as with almost all bills Democrats propose, it has a very lovely-sounding name. You hear the name and you think, who could be against this? It's the Equality Act. We're all in favor of equality. Who's against equality? So, I mean, it's just a, you know, a, a typical thing they do when they are trying to, to sell something. But the Equality Act is about amending amending, changing federal law to add, currently federal law provides that you can't discriminate in a variety of ways, you know, in housing and employment and all that, um, based on race, sex, and national origin. They want to add LGBTQ identity as, uh, LGBTQ and gender identity as protected groups within the Equality Act. And so the Democrats, of course, are all excited about this, and they held a press conference. I'm going to play, have Matt, if he has it ready, play briefly a clip from Nancy Pelosi announcing the Equality Act, and I'm going to tell you what is really, really a bad deal about it. 
Here's Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. Here we are today. We're proud to stand with members from both sides of the Capitol to take a momentous step toward full equality with LGBTQ Americans and for our country. Our founders, in their wisdom, wrote in our beautiful preamble to the, uh, to the Constitution, the blessings of liberty. Talked about the blessings of living, which were to be the birthright of all Americans. That's why I am especially upset that last night we're all sickened and saddened to see the president revive his hateful transgender service ban. No one with the strength and bravery to serve in the military should be turned away. For turned away. I got to tell you, she was kind of funny there. She, I, I cut it off, the clip I sent to Matt to have ready for today, I cut it off. She was waiting for applause, and she kind of stood there looking around, and ultimately, about maybe 10 seconds later, people finally figured out, oh, we're supposed to applaud. But I'm going to tell you what I think is so troublesome about this. Many things. But number one is this is including within the, you know, the, the whole argument about Title VII. When Title VII was passed, these were in, the term in the law was, and in the legislative history was, inherent characteristics. From the day you were born, you are male or female, you have a certain skin color, you have a certain ethnicity, race, national origin, these are inherent characteristics. And we decided as a nation that we're going to have those protected in federal law so people cannot be discriminated against in employment, in housing, in, other, in public accommodations based on those inherent characteristics. We are now in this country uh, in a a uh, huge um, era of change related to the LGBTQ um, agenda. The LGBTQ agenda being the agenda being pushed by the American left. And so it's um, the, you know, lesbian, um, I'm not going to even try to say what they all are, but one of them that is mo of most concern is transgender. And the transgender issue is among the main reasons this bill is so extremely problematic. You're elevating to a right under federal law, the right to be free of discrimination based on your status of saying, essentially, I was born a male, but you know I identify as a female, and that's my gender identity, and then also your right to move forward with your transgender effort, to transition from being the, the gender you were born as, and you want to transfer into being the, the other gender. And so, you know, these are really hard questions. They're ethical questions. They are, they have moral questions for society. They certainly, for many Christians, have religious aspects to how we think about it. But what this bill will do, putting this into federal law, let me give you some examples. For example, what about a thing that I think is extremely problematic, and I think many parents do, which is what about when males boys, people born as males, get to the high school level and they want to compete in sporting events that are gender specific. And many sporting events are. Track and field is a huge one where, you know, women, there's women's track and field and men's track and field. And we've had cases, we talked about them a few weeks ago, one in Connecticut where girls who have worked their whole lives to be athletes, to develop their athletic ability, their speed, their whatever their, their, their event is, their jumping or whatever their event is, they've worked their whole lives with the idea that perhaps they'll be able to get a scholarship in college if they can show that they are the star of their event, that they want to compete in statewide events. 
But in Connecticut, as happened all over this country, you have boys, young men, who are in high school who are still biologically and in every way boys, but they say, but I identify as a female and I want to run in the all girls event. And the schools have been, most of the schools have been going along with it and saying, well, okay, if you say, I, I can see you're a male. I mean, your physique is a male, your everything about you is male, but you want to be female, okay. But what happens is, of course, that boys, and we all can be honest, boys are different than girls. It's okay to say that here on my show. There are differences, inherent differences between male and female. Boys in high school tend to be faster and stronger. Boys win wrestling matches against girls when boys are competing in women's wrestling and girls wrestling. So you're going to get that whole controversy already playing out in schools around the country. That's going to become a federal right. A federal right for a boy in high school who's still a boy in every way to say, no, I'm, I'm identifying as a female, so I want to wrestle in the female um, you know, wrestling matches. I want to run in the female track meets. And they will, right now, it's already a controversy and people you know, discussing how to handle it. It's going to become a right, a federal right. That's one all by itself. And, and now I'm going to get to a bunch of them, but that's one. The second one is that there are cases in which minors, children under 18, decide that they are, their, their gender identity is wrong, they were born a male, but they really think they're a female, or they're born female, they really think they're a male, and they want to move forward in transitioning into the other gender. And it's a real challenge for courts to decide because you do have parents who say, you know, I'd rather my daughter or my son get counseling. I'd rather that we try to work this out. I'd rather that we see if there's some other way we can figure out what's going on, this child's thinking. But we've already had courts in this country and in Canada take the side of a minor child, take away the rights of the parent of the child and say, regardless parent of you know you gave birth to a girl, you know you've been raising a daughter, she now wants to identify or says she identifies as a boy, she wants to begin the transition process, the gender transition process, and the court's taking the side of the child over the parents. Put another way, the court's taking away parental rights, and this is against the backdrop of numerous people who have weighed in to point out that there are children who go through phases of all kinds. And if you don't indulge the first, the beginning of the hormonal treatments and ultimately surgery and all the steps in between, young people, young children and girls and boys, they may grow out of this. They may have counseling, you have reasons that they may realize later, yeah, you know, I was off on that and, and now I'm not. But this adds a whole new legal wrinkle a whole new reason that the federal courts and state courts, it'll be actually, this will be state courts, will have to say, but your child appears to have a federal right to be transgender. So the court may give far more, in fact, would give far more weight to the child's request at a young age, 12, 13, 14, or even younger, to begin the, the gender transition process because of the existence of the federal law. This is a very tender, very confused uh, area of law, an area era of flux. And yet what this would do 
would give the courts more reason to, to interfere with parental rights to support the child who may later say, you know, as I thought about it, you know, I, I really think I'm the opposite. And then later might say, as a matter of fact, you know, I, I was really, 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 really wrong about that. That's not who I am at all. So you have that whole concern, sporting events. You have, of course, all of these shower, locker room um, issues, what you're going to... Um, you know, what you're going to permit or require, uh, whether schools are going to let a biological boy use the women's shower while the girls are in there. I mean, everyone tries to act like, well, you know, that's okay because he's really identifying. No, and we know it's not. And there have been cases of sexual assault when biological boys are using the locker room and the showers uh, in a, for, that is intended for girls. All those issues already exist in society, but writing it into federal law takes away the power of parents, takes away the power of state courts, takes away the power of school districts. All of that will become subsumed under this federal law. There are a lot of other reasons, but I want to get down to that this is just a really, really bad idea. Among the other, one other one, then I want to hit the last point on this story, but you know, right now we have teachers in schools around the country who have lost their jobs because the school adopts a policy requiring a teacher to use the pronoun a child says is his or her pronoun that day. And it's usually not him or her, she or he. It's usually one of those made up pronouns that doesn't even have a meaning, but it's a ter and jer, whatever they are. Point is that right now school districts, you know, they try to figure out what to do about that. What do we do when a child says, I'm offended that you call me her because I'm really him or whatever they're, they're saying about themselves. We've had teachers who've lost their jobs simply because they're saying, I'm not going to call him a her or her a him. We are entirely, and it, what is so bothersome about this is, so we've, we've had schools, by the way, stories of teachers who said, look, I'm happy to teach the child. I'm happy to call him or her by whatever name, you know, their name is whatever their given name is, or even their assumed name, a name they change and they want to be called something else. But we're forcing teachers have been forced by school districts to use pronouns toward a child. A teacher says, that's not, I, I can't do that. That's not even real. That's not true. And, you know, I have to say on this particular subject, it is extremely bothersome to think that the school's forever and a day take the side of the LGBTQ agenda, take the side of the radical left, take the side of people who are trying to claim that there really are more than two genders, people trying to claim that they really, no matter what their physique looks like, I really am the opposite of what my physique is, opposite of the gender I was born in. I know there are people struggling and people hurting, people who struggle because whatever reason they have, they aren't comfortable with the, the biology they have. And so we can work on that in our society in many ways. But this, putting this into federal law, pulls all of that discussion, all of that back and forth, all of that trying to come to terms, pulls it all out of the hands of the school districts, the parents, the teachers. It puts it entirely under federal law and entirely under the control of the LGBTQ advocates, entirely 
under their control. There's no more societal discussion, societal discussion, no more, you know, can we find a way to compromise? The entire issue, the, the agenda of the left, the entire issue is to pull it out of the ability to solve things within families, within communities, within schools, within states, and becomes a mandate from the federal government, it will get down to, believe me, it'll get down to the pronouns you're forced to use or else be prosecuted, which by the way is in New York City, already has the, uh, it is a, it's just an infraction, but still something you can be charged with if you use a pronoun inconsistent with what the person wants you to use. If that guy wants you to call him or her, that's what you have to do. This is just gives more power to the federal government or ridiculous power. And the last thing that was discussed that you heard from Nancy Pelosi, she is lamenting, she is lamenting that the military is going to go back to being a military where the people who serve are men. And I mean, not that women can't serve and women do serve, but this whole transgender social experimentation mode in the military started under President Obama, very much intended in my view by President Obama to just simply weaken, confuse, and demoralize the American military. Started under Obama, so now we have, and I meant to look it up before I came here, I saw the number the other day, but the millions and millions and millions of dollars the United States military has spent paying for transition of a small number of people, because every person is an expensive transition process, a small number of people transitioning, male to female, female to male, whatever it is, they're doing the transition, they're paying for it themselves, the military's become a petri dish for social experimentation, and Trump finally said, no, we're not doing this transgender thing in the military. The military's purpose is to defend America. The military's purpose is to train people who join the military, put people into battle and harm's way who can meet the standards the military sets, and the military is going, not going to have to deal with, according to Trump's new order, going to have to deal with the transgender issue. It just doesn't belong in the military. Trump is right about that. And this is another reason why this, this Equality Act, this bill that the Democrats are so excited about, is going to lead to more confusion, more challenges, more difficulties for America, for the military, and for and for the just the functioning of our society. We're going to end up with federal law saying, well, LGBTQ is protected under Title VII, just like race, sex, and national origin, and it will it will not it will not as the left hopes solve more problems. It will create more problems. It will create more litigation, more challenges, more, um, just more societal grief. There is, there is, I mean, and I got to tell you, the left knows this. I don't even think for a moment that they really want to have the LGBTQ agenda written into Title VII out of love and compassion. I don't even believe that for a moment. And I, I, I think they're far more have far more a sinister motivation. This is undermining of America's families, undermining of the idea of the place of faith in our country, or the right of parents to raise their children in faith. It is an undermining of our culture, our, the, the roots of our culture in Judeo-Christian teaching. But I gotta tell you, the left loves it. They're on fire. They are, this is their new agenda. 
Obviously, I don't think it's going to get through the Senate. I guess Mitch McConnell has already said, well, no way. And so it's not going to go anywhere. But this will be an issue in the 2020 elections. It'll be the Democrats saying, look what we did. We tried to get the Equality Act. We tried to get the Equality Act through and, and you know, protect LGBTQ um, people in, in the Title VII Act. And it's going to be incumbent on our side to be able to explain why that was a bad idea. I gave you a few examples. It's a bad idea to usurp the role of parents in raising a child who's challenged, who's, who's facing confusion and difficulty and challenge. We ought to be the side taking. We're going to help parents work with their kids. We're going to take the side of freedom of religion and let parents try to teach their children and help their children and seek counseling. We're going, to, I mean, we're going to take the side of the military, wanting the military to be strong, made up of people who are not in the mental struggle of deciding which gender they are. And I got to tell you, folks, I know, I know this is a very tender issue. And as it's been talked about in this country, more people are saying, well, you know, what are we supposed to do? What are these people supposed to do? They really are people who are confused. I understand that. There are people who are confused, people who truly think they're not the gender of, the, of their body in which, in which they were born, that their true identity is the opposite, who want to take steps to, to, to make that transition. And in our country, once you're an adult, no one's stopping you. There's no law against transitioning once you're an adult. And no one's suggesting there should be a law against transitioning once you are an adult. But we're losing the putting this into federal law interferes with parents. It also interferes with the whole conversation in our country of how we handle this issue because it's a, a taken over left wing mandate attitude from the Democrats. No more discussion. Salute to the LGBTQ agenda. No further discussion allowed. And that is not healthy. That is not really what anything about what Title seven was supposed to be about. Title VII was about the idea of inherent characteristics and not the LGBTQ agenda, which is, of course, causing all sorts of challenges in our country. So we'll be talking more about this. I ran out of time this issue. I want to hit one more issue today, but sometime soon I'm going to tell you the story. Um, I read a lengthy article, and I'm going to tell you about it sometime soon in this show, but not today, uh, which was a guy um, or a person who was born as a man who went through deciding for a variety of reasons. He was subject to uh, sexual abuse as a child. His parents beat him. He had a tough childhood, decided he was a woman, began the transition to a woman, tried to live as a woman. Then he went to saying, no, I'm not either. I'm non-binary. That's my agenda. I, he brought a lawsuit saying, I want my birth certificate to say I'm non-binary. And he's finally now coming out and saying, you know what? I'm a guy. I've always been a guy. That's what I am. And the people along the way, the experts, the left-wingers who cajoled and encouraged every perversion I sought, they weren't helping me at all. So his story, he's, I understand, his is just one story. There are many, but there's, it's a very, um, it's an area where the last thing we need is a federal law arm-twisting Americans out of having any conversation about what what the um, about the consequences of transitioning, about the consequences of to children uh, of going through transitioning that they can force their parents to pay for. This is a, a typical left wing mandate from Washington, and everyone's going to agree with this mode, and we don't want to go there. 
I'm Debbie George Jazz. This is America Can We Talk. Stay tuned for a three-second break. And when we come back, I'm going to tell you about the most amazing story unfolding at Harvard. It truly is a case of the students flunking kindergarten comprehension of the Constitution. Stay tuned. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. Okay, this is the most amazing story. So there is at Harvard a professor He's a, uh, he's a law professor there. So he's a law professor. He's also, they have these people who live in the dorms with students as kind of a, I don't know the precise title, but a kind of a counselor. Oh, he's the faculty dean, the faculty dean in a dorm at Harvard in the Winthrop house. So once at Harvard, once they're done the freshman year, uh, kids band together into groups and they live in the same house on campus uh, or near campus all the rest of the remaining three years. So they become really uh, very um, connected. They feel like it's, it's like a home away from home. So Winthrop House has a dean, um, a faculty dean, who's also a law professor. His name is Ronald Sullivan. Ronald Sullivan, as a lawyer and law professor, recently took on the representation, or joined the team actually, the representation of Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein being, of course, the Hollywood producer, famous for having, being known for, um, I don't want to get him off the screen right now, yeah, famous for having been known for his, uh, you know, getting people onto the casting bed. Harvey Weinstein accused of multiple rape, sexual assault. He really, the story of him coming out launched him into the, launched the Me Too movement. So I have a video I want to show you. This is a Harvard student. This is a girl, and her video was like 17 minutes long, I think it was. What she's griping about, but you need to hear her, what she's complaining about is that Harvey Weinstein, that Harvey Weinstein actually has, as one of his lawyers, this faculty guy at Harvard. And so let me tell you what she has to say, and then I'll tell you what I think about it. If I look a bit of a mess right now, it's because today's been kind of a tough day. Um, the Crimson recently published two articles where one of our upperclassmen houses here at Harvard, Winthrop House, um, one of the faculty deans who, so a faculty dean is someone who um, is there to facilitate community in the house and whose job is to make all the students feel safe, supported, encouraged, welcomed, um, you know, someone who students can talk to if they don't feel like something is right in their life, whether that's personal, professional, academic. Um, and so Winthrop House's faculty dean uh, recently joined the defense team of Harvey Weinstein. Obviously, you can imagine why it would be so shocking when a member of the Harvard faculty is on the legal defense team for an alleged rapist and sexual assaulter. As a community leader, it was his job to protect, you know, the trust of his students and to protect them from such, from, to protect them and to protect the opportunity to state these things that have happened to them and to allow them to express their experiences and feel safe, which is not what has happened. Um, 
Furthermore, like the message I just got was someone, some other random guy that I have literally haven't seen since freshman year, telling me that I'm wrong because I think that lawyers shouldn't do their jobs because I believe that lawyers should um, only take the moral stance, which I obviously don't believe. Obviously, lawyers all over the world are protecting criminals because that's their job and they're paid to do that. For the fourth time, it's about being a community leader and about fulfilling that job. There is no reason why this dean cannot just step down and if he wants to be a lawyer, he can go and be a lawyer somewhere else or even remain on this campus and be a lawyer. But why does he have to try and be a community leader at the same time? Those two roles cannot like coexist as one. Okay, folks, this is so important to grasp what is so wrong with this. First of all, I am in sympathy with this young girl because she really is traumatized. When she began the tape, she's obviously been crying about this. So a Harvard faculty dean guy living in a dorm who's supposed to be one of the people you can go to if you have troubles of any kind, she's upset because outside of his Harvard life, as a law professor, he's joined the criminal defense team for Harvey Weinstein. What she's saying is that because his job at Harvard requires him to sometimes have to hear the complaints, concerns, you know, whatever is going on with their students, that he can't have that job representing Weinstein and be trusted to do his job. She is in meltdown mode. I only played a tiny portion of this astonishing meltdown. And I want to say a couple of things about what is so egregiously wrong. And there's a very funny ending to this story. It's not over yet. But number one once this story came out, the Harvard Crimson reported that this professor is rep representing Harvey Weinstein. They started to have people who were putting, um, marking up the, the uh, professor's door, vandalism spraying, Me Too slogans, Your Silence is Violence, on the Winthrop House walls, on the walls of the building. Harvard then held listening sessions attended by emissaries from the university's office for sexual assault prevention and response to listen to students to have because listen so students could tell them how upset they were that this guy dared defend Harvey Weinstein and then how can he defend Harvey Weinstein and have a job here as someone who is supposed to listen to our complaints they made such a fuss about it and there's all these positions at Harvard all these you know, that mentioned one, the sexual assault and prevention and response team. They, they, the students are complaining that his choice of a client was deeply trauma inducing. And Mr. Sullivan doesn't value the safety of his students. That's what these people are complaining about. So they have made such a fuss that Harvard actually opened an investigation into law professor Ronald Sullivan over his decision to join the criminal defense team for Harvey Weinstein. They have vandals spraying Me Too. They have sob sessions. They have complaints. The university keeps meeting with the students and trying to talk about how they, you know, how they really can relate to their concerns and they're so sorry they're upset. And this girl is essentially arguing, this girl on the video, is essentially arguing that this guy, this professor, has to choose between his job at Harvard and representing Harvey Weinstein. The university is impossibly ridiculous. They had Rakesh Karana, the dean of Harvard College, and a business, law, business school professor launched a review of concerns about the community's overall climate at this dorm, Winthrop House. 
The administration's just going right along with talking about in terms that sound like a re-education camp with this guy. And let me tell you what's so wrong with this. Number one, the Sixth Amendment gives everyone the right to counsel. Harvard is blowing this opportunity to teach, to use this incident as a teaching moment. They're blowing the opportunity to talk to these students to say, look, in America, everybody has a right to an attorney. And attorneys don't only take cases of people they like and agree with or of innocent people. Harvey Weinstein has a Sixth Amendment right to an attorney. Second point is, that the university is is indulging this crying, me too, emotional meltdown, listening session, slobbing, slobbery mess, instead of saying to students, let's have a grown up conversation. Has, and, and this guy, by the way, to be clear, Ronald Sullivan has made, he's not been charged or accused of any wrongdoing. Nothing inappropriate at Harvard. Nothing failing in his job performance. Nothing at all. But Harvard, instead of being the grown-up in the room, and this is really the problem, Harvard has no grown-ups in the room. Harvard is teaching their students that they are supposed to be perfectly free, not just to speak up about anything that's none of their business, which this guy's job outside of Harvard is none of their business, but they're entitled, Harvard is teaching these students, you're entitled to force him out. If you're upset, if he upsets you, you know, you get, you get to force him out. What is this girl gonna do in real life when she graduates from Harvard and she actually gets a real job in a real business and discovers that the head of HR in her company or the guy in the next cubicle actually supports traditional marriage? And she views that as hateful. Does she think everyone has to conform to how she thinks or else they have to be thrown out? I'm not really, this segment's not really about criticizing this young woman. It's criticizing the failure of Harvard to be the grown-up, to deal with this situation in a grown-up manner, to tell the students we're not going to have sob sessions anymore. He's allowed to take this job. It's a Sixth Amendment right. And if he hasn't done anything wrong at campus, you don't get to drive him out just because you are doing this snowflake, I don't feel safe, childish complaint. We can't do that. Last point in this, in this uh, segment is just amazing on this, on this story. So turning tables on the politically correct left. Now we can put up a picture of this guy. Turning tables on Harvard, this professor, is now complaining that this protest against him is based on his race. So the lefty, you know, the, I don't even know what to call these students, the, you know, sob session, you know, snowflake, uh, don't feel safe, need my safe space students, complaining about his, a job he took outside of campus are now Harvard's got to deal with the fact this guy is he's saying that the administration, he gave an interview to the New Yorker and he said it and, and Harvard did a climate survey, sending out a survey to students. Do you feel safe now that this professor took a job? Is that, is that, do you feel safe? And he's attacking the climate survey, essentially saying it's absolutely never happened before. I don't believe it happened again to any non-minority faculty dean. Now I'm gonna tell you this racism allegation is absurd 
as are the students' complaints. Absurd. But this is a result of having no adults in charge at Harvard and, frankly, at most colleges in America. No adults to say, we're not here to pander to your every emotion, your every feeling, your, and we're not here to make sure that anyone who might upset you is forced off campus. Harvard had a great opportunity, and they still do, to sit the students down, one-time discussion, He's allowed to represent who he wants. This is part of the American system, the constitutional system, the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. And the fact that he does that outside of his job here, as long as he does his job well here, it's none of your business. And you, students, need to go about your business, go to class, learn the Constitution, and grow up. I'm Debbie Georges. This is America Can We Talk. I think I'm past time. So I want to say thank you for listening to America Can We Talk Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time every day. And I want to urge everyone listening to the show to be part of the American political conversation. Be part of the group that's speaking up to preserve this extraordinary, exceptional country, which is a gift to everyone who lives here. I'm Debbie Georges. America Can We Talk. Talk to you tomorrow. Can We Talk? Truth About America.